Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 4.14, The Liberty Riots. Last time, we spent our episode examining the first few months of 1768. Tensions over the Townsend Acts, especially in Massachusetts, were on the rise. The circular letter had inflamed the British Parliament, who were now entrenching more out of principle than any kind of a conviction in the Townsend Acts themselves. By the late spring of 1768, everybody was on edge. Massachusetts Governor Francis Bernard was stuck in between a rock and a hard place, wedged in between the recalcitrant colonists and a British ministry demanding that more be done to rein in those same American colonists. Attempts by Bernard and the customs commissioners to act upon the colonists had all been unsuccessful, as, unsurprisingly, the American colonists were not eager to convict their compatriots. The target of the anger from the customs commissioners in Massachusetts had fallen squarely onto the wealthy merchant and suspected smuggler, John Hancock. The customs commissioners, however, thus far, had fallen completely flat in their attempts to go after Hancock. Following an embarrassing defeat in their failed attempt to prosecute Hancock, the customs commissioners were left limping back to stew in their own anger. Rather, however, than reading the room and backing down, the customs commissioners are about to decide that doubling down, well, that is the way to go. This is going to launch a series of events that is going to consume the colonies in the coming months. The customs commissioners, having decided that they were not going to be backing down, made their next move against Hancock on May 9th. On the 9th itself, things were innocuous enough. Nothing at that point really indicated what was coming. Hancock's ship, the Liberty, had docked in Boston Harbor on that same day. As was standard practice upon docking, the town's customs workers boarded the ship to make sure everything being brought into the colony had been properly declared. Hancock unloaded some 25 casks of high-quality Madeira. Hancock paid his duties as required, and that was that. So, everything seems simple enough, right? Hancock had declared everything. It was confirmed by those same customs workers, and he paid the required duties. Well, considering that the name of today's episode is The Liberty Riots, you might have already guessed that things were not going to be that simple. Indeed, it was a month later on June 10th that the commissioners ordered Benjamin Hollowell and Joseph Harrison to seize the Liberty. The ship had remained in the harbor the entire time, and really, beyond being loaded with some new cargo of whale oil and tar, nothing had meaningfully changed regarding the Liberty since the search back in May. What had changed is the story of a guy named Thomas Kirk. Thomas Kirk was one of the two customs workers who had boarded the Liberty a month earlier on May 9th. Kirk had informed the customs commissioners that he had previously lied on his declaration page regarding the Liberty. Per Kirk, after refusing a bribe from the Liberty's captain, he had been seized and detained below deck. During that time, he could hear hours worth of unloading taking place, suggesting that Hancock had indeed brought far more cargo in 
than he had previously declared. When he was eventually released, Kirk was threatened with violence, should he mention his ordeal. Kirk, concerned about such threats, went ahead and kept his mouth shut. Okay, so clearly, this, if true, would be a pretty big deal. But there were still several problems with Kirk's story. First, Kirk was not the only guy that day. Recall that just a moment ago, I mentioned that there were two customs workers that had boarded the Liberty in May. Except, Kirk explained that his partner was not there that day, as he was busy nursing a nasty hangover. Kirk, therefore, was alone on the Liberty. As for those threats of violence that Kirk was claiming, those also could not be confirmed, as the Liberty's captain, the one who had made the threats in the first place, was now dead. In fact, the captain had died all the way back on May 10th, one day after the initial search. This means that Kirk had waited an entire extra month after the captain's death before alerting anybody of the situation. It is also worth noting that Kirk, as the sole official on board the ship, would have received a nifty sum, a third of the total proceeds, from the smuggled goods and the ship, should allegations of smuggling be proven against Hancock. Looking at everything here objectively, it is hard to read this and fully buy into Kirk's story. He was clearly not a disinterested individual. Should his story be believed, Kirk was in line to make a nice little profit. Furthermore, we should mention that he did in fact wait that entire month to say anything at all, even though the threat of violence had been nullified by the captain's death. Evidence suggests that the customs commissioners also knew that Kirk was probably lying, considering that their official charges against Hancock had nothing at all to do with the false imprisonment of poor Thomas Kirk. Rather, the offense that they got Hancock for was saying that he had illegally loaded the whale oil and tar in his ship prior to declaring it. Policy at this time was that any cargo being loaded onto a ship needed to be formally declared prior to actually being put on the ship. This had always proved difficult and custom had long been to load the ship first, as that would provide a far more accurate idea of what was actually on board when a captain drafted a manifest. What Kirk had provided the commissioners with is a reason for them to do anything to the Liberty. Once they made their move, it was just a matter of trying to find some offense to justify their previous actions. This was absolutely a pretextual seizure. Hancock's ship had been seized for an offense that had never previously been prosecuted in the colony. The customs officials, having decided that this was as good of an excuse as any, went ahead and seized the liberty. Now, the customs officials understood that people probably were not going to like this. But worry not. They sent in the Romney, a 50-gun man of war, just to make sure things went down smoothly. By this point, news of the seizure had spread throughout Boston, and a mob had begun to gather. The mob did what they could to prevent the men on the Romney from taking the liberty. But really, 
they were never actually going to succeed against a man of war. Although they were unable to stop the seizure of the Liberty, the now-growing angry mob still did have a few tricks up their sleeve. And by tricks, I mean general rioting. The first target was Benjamin Hollowell and Joseph Harrison, who were down at the docks helping with the seizure. The mob descended on the two men and beat them bloody. Although they both would escape, the riots continued throughout that evening. These riots, well, concerning, never really do reach the same level as those from the summer of 1765. The group attacked the homes of the customs workers, where they stuck more with vandalism, instead of tearing the houses down to their foundation, like we had seen some years earlier. Throughout the course of that night, a crowd of several thousand had gathered, vandalizing customs officials' homes and beating up any official unlucky enough to be found by the angry colonists. The coming days did see an end to the rioting. However, Boston was anything but stable. Both the Sons of Liberty and Francis Bernard were trying to figure out what to do next. Beginning with Bernard, it is undeniable that he was deeply shaken by this incident. We know that for months, Bernard had been warning Hillsborough, and frankly anybody that would listen, that riots were coming. Now, they were here. Bernard was in a horrible spot here, as he really had little hope of regaining any kind of meaningful control over the situation. What Governor Bernard wanted, and indeed had wanted for a while, was to bring troops into Boston to restore the order. The problem, however, is that he had a few things going against him. The first problem was Thomas Gage, who was still hanging out in New York. Gage had resolved that he would not send troops into Boston unless they were requested by a civil authority. This meant that for Bernard, to get the help that he desperately needed at this point, he was going to have to have the consent of the council. This leads immediately to the second, and ultimately fatal, problem that Bernard had on his hands. If you have been listening to the last several episodes, you already know the council's response. There was no universe where the council was going to authorize Bernard to bring in troops. Predictably, the council gave Bernard the answer that he already knew was coming. They were not about to authorize troops. Politically, Governor Bernard was a dead man walking by this time. He had no power to steer events and no longer had the ability to attempt to recapture his lost power. Well, still the governor in name, Bernard as a politician was finished. At the same time, the Sons of Liberty were busy holding mass meetings where they were making their plans for how to proceed. Now, the Sons of Liberty are something that we need to talk about. Today, this group is often seen as being some kind of revolutionary vanguard. However, at this time, I would caution you that this is really a whole lot more than what it really was. Ultimately, the plan from them was yet another petition be sent requesting the removal of the Romney from Boston Harbor, followed, of course, by the usual comments about taxation. Under the backdrop of all of this, Governor Bernard is about to be dealt possibly the biggest blow of all. 
it had been plainly clear, at least since our last episode, that Bernard was just drifting aimlessly. Any meaningful grasp he had over the colony had eroded away to nothing. As we had discussed just a few minutes ago, the council had basically tuned the guy out at this point. However, if you thought that Francis Bernard, a man who had no political power left at this point, had hit rock bottom, well then, you would be mistaken. Last time, we had discussed the correspondence going on between Bernard and Hillsborough. Now, if you will recall back, you will remember that I mentioned that the official instructions from Hillsborough was that if the circular letter was not promptly withdrawn, Bernard was to dissolve the assembly. When we had left off in our last episode, however, this information had yet to reach Bernard. In what must have been an absolutely stomach-sinking moment, Hillsborough's order arrived on the desk of Governor Bernard, right here, at this very moment. With his own political base now non-existent, riots in the streets over the seizure of the Liberty, and the Sons of Liberty arguably becoming the main political entity in Boston, Hillsborough's orders landed on his desk. One almost has to feel bad for Bernard here. For a moment, think about what he knows he is going to have to do. In the middle of all this tumult already plaguing Boston, he is going to have to march down to the assembly, inform them of their need to renounce the circular letter, or be disbanded. He was then going to be promptly left out of the assembly, as they were never going to renounce the circular letter. And then he was going to have to disband that assembly. Under the current climate in the colony, he then very well was going to have to hang out waiting for the mob to come tear him limb from limb. Certainly, it was not an envious situation to be in. Bernard, however, had no real choice in the matter. Sure enough, he went down on June 21st and announced Hillsborough's order. The assembly, led by James Otis, spent the better part of the next week denouncing Bernard and the British for their policy, and then on June 30th, it was voted down with a final tally of 92 to 17. With the resolution to rescind the circular letter now defeated, Bernard was left with no choice and had to proceed with disbanding the assembly. The Sons of Liberty, not liking how close the vote was, went forward with a campaign celebrating the glorious 92 in the Boston Gazette, while at the same time printing the names of those 17 who had voted against it. Several of those 17 quickly jumped to defend their own actions, explaining that they would have voted down rescinding the circular letter, but unfortunately, they were absent that day. This means that many of the 17 that seemingly voted to rescind quickly clarified their position leaving Bernard even more isolated. The entire affair had really been a huge boon to the Sons of Liberty, who now had a very valid complaint that their right to both assemble and seek a redress of their grievances was being completely undermined. Led primarily by Sam Adams, the summer of 1768 would see a frantic campaign of writing pamphlets regarding the colonists' current position. Heading into that summer of 1768, 
there was a palpable sense of dread for just about everybody in the colony. While the Sons of Liberty would seem to be at a high point, they were always looking nervously over their shoulder for a detachment of troops to arrive and crush any kind of resistance at the end of a musket. For Bernard, he was desperately wanting troops to come in and do just that. However, he recognized that he had little ability to make that happen by himself. The council was not going to be any help. And as Bernard would write in letters that summer, he very much feared for his own life. Now, we are going to get back to the narrative in a minute. However, before we can do that, I want to take a few minutes to introduce a new player into the show, who would really begin to take on a more prevalent role during the summer of 1768. Well, much of our attention thus far has been on the Sons of Liberty's leader, Samuel Adams. Following the Liberty Riots, we see the early emergence of Samuel Adams' second cousin, a 33-year-old up-and-coming lawyer from Braintree, Massachusetts, named John Adams. Born on October 9, 1735 to John Adams Sr., a local deacon and farmer, and Susanna Boylston, the young John Adams would express his desire to be a farmer as he was an avid lover of fishing and hunting and enjoyed being outside. However, it was not to be. Adams Sr. had, prior to the birth of his son, decided that his eldest son would receive a full education. John Adams was not immediately winning awards for being a great student. Especially during his younger years, he found far more joy in ditching school to run off and fish than he did sitting through lessons. As he got older and ultimately entered Harvard, however, Adams did settle down and place his attention onto his studies. Though Adams had expressed his wish to his father to drop out of school and become a farmer, Deacon John Adams was just not having it. However, while his father would win the day over making sure his son remained in school, he would lose the battle over the direction of his son's education. You see, Deacon John Adams had wanted his son to take up the pulpit. However, the younger Adams had no interest in pursuing a career in the church. By the time he was at Harvard, Adams had his sights set on a career in the law. Adams, now out of school, had seen his law practice begin to grow. The growth had become enough that he, along with his wife Abigail and their daughter Nabby and baby son John Quincy, moved to Boston to better accommodate his work. Now, before moving on, we need to make one more introduction. Normally, when I introduce somebody as important as a future president, they are going to get a more formal introduction, quite like what I'm doing right now for John Adams. Of course, I just introduced another president in John Quincy. However, John Quincy presents a unique situation where there really is no need to give him an introduction. His entire life, literally from the time that he was 10 years old until his death in 1848 at the age of 80, were spent in the public sphere. In that way, we are really going to, through the normal narrative of this show, follow John Quincy's life from birth until his death. Just to really tie together the range of time that we are talking about, we are introducing John Quincy Adams right now, when he dies 80 years in the future 
Among those that would help plan his funeral was a freshman congressman from Illinois, Abraham Lincoln. So, also welcome to the show, John Quincy Adams. We will be following your career with great interest. Although John Adams was perhaps a bit more cautious in his approach than either his cousin or James Otis Jr., he absolutely had his sympathies pointed in the direction of the Sons of Liberty. However, while he would not be the most prominent of actors in the entire affair, John Adams is involved in the colonial response to the seizure of the Liberty, and will be coming up again. Hence why I wanted to introduce him now, so be aware that he is involved with all of this. John Adams was indeed taking up an active role prior to the Townsend duties. However, in respect to those duties, we see a somewhat reluctant Adams writing a week after the seizure of the Liberty. In a letter to the representatives of Boston, Adams writes on the mortification that the colonists had over the continued attempts to raise a revenue from them. Adams maintains a measured tone throughout the letter, pledging his allegiance to both the king as well as an acknowledgement of parliamentary supremacy. He would, however, lambast the decision to seize the liberty as being an illegal seizure. Adams talks further about the constant rumors that were running through the colonies of more revenue acts about to come down on the colonists. Adams stated that nothing should be left undone that could bring about the relief of the colony. Finally, Adams addresses the rumors of troops being brought into Boston, to which he states, Every such person who shall solicit or promote the importation of troops at this time is an enemy to this town and province, and a disturber of the peace and good order of both. This particular letter is not the grand crescendo of publications to come out of the period. However, it does do a few things for us, which is why I wanted to introduce it. First, it does bring John Adams officially into our story. We are going to spend a lot of time with John Adams, indeed for a very long time to come, and this really marks a good point to bring him in. Adams' writings, however, also give us a measured look at the seizure of the liberty, insight into the colonial rumor mill, and a stark denunciation of the prospect of troops being brought into Boston. The date of this publication by Adams should also be noted, as it came out on June 17th. This means that when John Adams sent it off, he was still unaware that a few days later the Hillsborough letter would be received by Bernard. As the summer of 1768 dragged on, the situation seemed hopeless for Bernard in Boston. Through July, he was stuck watching as events took place around him. In August, it seemed for a moment that things were going to get better for Bernard. Concerned over his correspondence with both Bernard and Thomas Gage, Secretary of War Barrington decided that everybody had had enough fun for one day and informed Gage that the time was at hand to bring troops into Boston to restore the order. Now, we know that this is literally the exact thing that Bernard had been requesting for a while now, so we would think that such news would be something that he would rejoice at. Except that was not the case. In fact, the news made Bernard despair even more. 
The problem for Bernard is that the popular sentiment to the idea of troops being brought in to restore the peace in Boston was downright rebellious. John Adams had written just weeks before that troops coming in were the enemies to Boston and to the general peace. This was not just John Adams being radical either, but instead this was an increasingly pervasive sentiment throughout the entire colony. One writer going under the pen name, Clericus Americanus, put the threat into context. When responding to the question of what the colonists should do if the British were to bring troops into Boston, he responded that they should declare their independence. This was published in the Boston Gazette in early September, with Clericus Americanus likely being the Reverend John Cleveland. When Bernard learned at the end of August troops were coming, he was already deeply concerned. When the Boston Gazette carried the piece from Clericus, it downright panicked him. Bernard was not at all interested in going to war with the colonists, and now based on the increasingly loud muttering around Boston, the arrival of troops could prove catastrophic. Possibly spurred on by the call for independence, he decided that he could simply not let British troops roll into the colony unannounced. That is why, on September 9th, Bernard would personally leak the information. While trying to defuse a potential bomb, all Bernard really did was give the colonists ample time to plan their response and ensure that nothing would go smoothly. In response to his request, the Boston town meeting demanded he call another legislative session, thus giving the colonists an official channel through which to air their very considerable grievances. Bernard responded that this was not going to happen. He had his orders from Hillsborough, and he was not about to violate them. This was not an unexpected response by Bernard, whom probably nobody expected was going to call a new legislature. With this now official, it was on to Plan B. What was Plan B, you ask? The colonists called a convention of towns. This was, in all but name and official authority, a legislature. To be sure, everybody knew exactly what this convention of towns was. Though, technically, they did not have any actual power, as again, they were not a legislative body. That did not stop them from very strongly encouraging action. The action that the convention advocated for was equally as concerning. In preparation for a coming war with France, the convention advocated that every home needed to make sure that they had a musket and accompanying ammunition at the ready. Now, if you are sitting there thinking to yourself, hey, what war with France? You never mentioned a war with France. Well, you are correct. I never have mentioned a war with France. There was no impending war with France. The use of France was little more than an intentionally thin veil for Britain. Not that the colonists had any real incentive to hide their intentions. They wanted them to be very plainly known. Overall, the convention would strike a surprisingly moderate tone, largely because more than just Boston was represented. Smaller towns outside of Boston remained far less radical. As a result, three factions emerged within the convention. You had the more radical group led by men like Otis Hancock and Samuel Adams. 
You had their polar opposites whom advocated that this entire convention was madness and illegal, and that everybody needed to go home right now. Finally, you had a moderate group who advocated for more measured responses and waiting to see if British troops were indeed coming before they make any drastic decisions. The convention did take another stab at getting Bernard to call the legislature, which was, as expected, promptly ignored. Bernard, not wanting to dig his hole any deeper, refused to even accept the petition, obviously himself believing that the convention was illegal. At the end of the day, the convention really did not move the ball much. They decided on writing yet another petition to send to the king, who by this point was getting bombarded with petitions from the colonies. It should also be noted that despite some sharp rhetoric to make sure that they were all armed from the more radical factions of the meeting, the Convention of Towns did not take any actual action towards resisting the arrival of British troops. As the historian Robert Middlecuff puts it, however, the outcome of the convention was nowhere near as consequential as the fact that the meeting took place at all. The meeting was not actually illegal. It was really just a meeting of people that held no actual authority. The radicalism of the convention of towns stemmed out of the fact that the meeting was yet another sharp show of defiance towards Britain. Ultimately, what even the most radical members of the convention must have realized is that in a fight with Great Britain, it was going to be tremendously one-sided. As of right now, we have seen an increase in colonial cooperation. However, Boston is in a different place from almost everywhere else, including the rest of Massachusetts. While the other colonies seem to be on board with the idea of resistance against the trade practices of Great Britain, nobody outside a few agitators in Boston were yet prepared to declare war against the mother country. Even in Boston, records reflect that during the actual meetings, Otis and Adams fell short of calling for resistance through the use of force. The men may have been on the radical end of the spectrum in that moment. However, they were not suicidal. The day following the disbanding of the convention, the first troops did begin to arrive in Boston. There was no resistance to their arrival. All those muskets and ammunition that were urged to be held for a coming war with France remained safely stowed away. Despite the fact that the colonists in reality were a bit less excited to actually violently resist the British, that did not stop the British from having real concerns. Thomas Gage writing to Hillsborough prior to his arrival in Boston wrote that he was fully prepared to deal with a rebellion through any means necessary. Gage expressed concern that the British leadership was going to go soft on the American rebels and instead advocated for a far heavier response to nip this movement in the bud. What Thomas Gage walked into was, ironically, more of the same that he had experienced in New York. The colonists attempted to deny quarter to the army, in the hopes that their stay in Boston would be so miserable that they would just pack up and leave. Gage would also realize just how nominalized the government had become. Writing to Hillsborough shortly after his arrival, Gage states that Boston essentially had no government. By November, the immediate crisis seemed to have cooled off. Not that anybody was particularly happy, 
However, Gage and his troops did a good enough job at intimidation that everybody concurred that it was a good time to lay low. For the time being, violence would be held in check by having very real soldiers with very real guns patrolling the town. Of course, Adams and Otis would fight back in written word, arguing that the troops were inconsistent with their rights as free citizens of the British Empire. However, little more was done. In London, it was again Benjamin Franklin trying to ensure that cooler heads prevailed. Franklin basically just waved the riots off in Boston as being a minor trifling affair. We have spent most of the time these last two weeks in Boston. However, it is important to understand that Boston, though the leading edge of the spear, was not the only place where resistance was taking place. While the other colonies were not exactly ready to throw down and take the British Empire on, nor were they planning to stand silently by. Spurred on by Dickinson's letters from a farmer and the circular letter, there was a dramatic drop in imports of British goods into the American colonies. This was most dramatic in New York, where imports fell by a staggering 85% between 1768 and 1769. However, while all of the colonies agreed that action was needed, the response to the Townsend Acts lacked the cohesiveness that had come with the Anti-Stamp Act actions. Everybody was on the same page that something needed to be done. However, they were all on completely different pages as to what the response should be. Other than agreeing that something needed to happen, nobody made any real move towards greater cooperation. As you will all remember, it was that sense of cooperation that would help galvanize the Stamp Act resistance. The long-term effect of this is that the response to the Townsend Acts would, by the middle of 1770, begin to fall apart. Unlike what we saw during the Stamp Act, where the Americans outlasted the British attempts at enforcement, the Townsend Acts produced the opposite effect, whereby the British outlasted the Americans' attempts to resist. As the historian Theodore Draper points out, this lesson would not be lost on the colonists. In Virginia, men like George Mason and George Washington would make note of the failure at resisting the Townsend Acts. They would ensure that in the future, those mistakes would be corrected. Next time, the colonists are forced to regroup following the arrival of troops in Boston. As 1769 arrived, everybody was going to have to focus on what was coming next and looking back at where they had been. Until then, I hope that you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we discuss the events of 1769.